I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The Supreme Court's 2018 to 19 term ended last week, and today on We the People, we will review the most consequential decisions of the term and examine the nature and future of the new Roberts Court. Joining us to explore this crucially important question are two of America's leading experts on constitutional law, great friends of the podcast. Leah Littman is assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan. She previously taught at the UC Irvine School of Law and in the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic at Stanford Law School. She clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy and has worked on many Supreme Court cases, including Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt. Leah is host of the new podcast, Strict Scrutiny, about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds us. Leah, it's great to have you back on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. And Ilya Shapiro is director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and editor of the Supreme Court Review. He's filed many amicus briefs at the Supreme Court on behalf of Cato and is a returning champion on We the People. Ilya, it is always wonderful to have you back on the show. Good to be on. If it's uh, June, July, we're talking SCOTUS. We certainly are. And let us jump right into it. The term ended with two blockbuster cases. The court, by five to four votes, declared that partisan gerrymandering is a political question that is non-justiciable and at the same time, at least temporarily, refused to allow the Trump administration to add a question about citizenship to the census. Leah, Chief Justice John Roberts was central to both of these decisions. What do his split votes say about his view of the court's institutional legitimacy and his role as the new swing justice on the Roberts Court? I think they underscored what you just suggested. We are now living under the Roberts Court. Chief Justice Roberts is the new median voter on the court. I wouldn't call him a swing justice because I think his views are very clear um, and he is definitely still a conservative justice. But what his votes in the gerrymandering and the census case suggest is there is a limit to what he is willing to do uh, to reach a particular result. The census case really tested the limits of deference to agencies and the chief was unwilling to allow the administration to add the citizenship question on the record they gave him, which was not particularly favorable to the agency, given that the agency had said our only rationale for doing this is to better enforce the Voting Rights Act. But all of the evidence that kind of came out during the trial, but also in the administrative record and then after the trial, suggested otherwise. Ilya, was Chief Justice Roberts correct in your view to take the institutional legitimacy of the court into account in his decision in the census case. What do you think of the legal reasoning that he used and what do you think of his role at the center of the new Roberts Court? Well, I think judges and especially justices, or justices included, should only take legal theory into account, uh, statutory interpretation or constitutional theory, what have you. Uh, These extra legal considerations, call them small p political, call them institutionalist, call them trying to be a minimalist, uh, I think that's extraneous. I think that detracts from what the proper judicial role is, which is, as John Roberts said at his confirmation hearings, to call balls and strikes. That is, not that it's as simple as calling balls and strikes, but it's to apply uh, how you think about the law 
and let the chips fall where they may, let the results of the cases fall where they may. So uh, I, for one, am, am frustrated with John Roberts when he does something other than simply vote or, or write you know, what the law should be uh, in, a, in a given case. Um, what's interesting is that uh, he's supposed to be the median vote, the first time we've had the chief justice in that role in, I think, in 50 years. Uh, but this term, uh, the new justice, Kavanaugh, was actually in the majority more than Roberts, 91% compared to 85. Now, I think that'll kind of settle in, and uh, they, 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 those two are, are close together anyway. Uh, but we did see certainly the last day of the court, the last week of the term, uh, that Roberts was taking it into himself to uh, decide as little as possible and defer, uh, as you said. As far as the census case goes, I think there's a good parallel to the travel ban, where there's a big difference in how courts did and how the Supreme Court, I think, would have treated travel ban 1.0 versus 2.0 when you fully lawyer everything up and get all your ducks in a row. It's a very different result than when you kind of have a, a ham-handed a, a attempt to pull one on the court. Uh, and that just, uh, you know, he, he sent it back. And over the course of the summer, I think we can see, we'll, we'll see more process with potentially even an emergency hearing of the Supreme Court on the, whatever new rationale uh, or justification the Commerce Department might come up with. Well, Leah, Ilya said, made a strong point. He said that uh, the chief and other justices should only take legal considerations into account, and these institutional ones are, are not appropriate. Uh, do you agree or disagree and say, say more about just how central Roberts's concern about institutional legitimacy will be uh, as long as he remains at the center of the Roberts court? Sure. So two points on that. First, you know, with respect to the census case in particular, as Ilya was suggesting, the census case arrived at the court on kind of Commerce Department's first poorly constructed draft of an attempt to add a citizenship question without its justifications fully fleshed out and its rationale really kind of unmoored from the agency's process that underlie it. Um, and so it's not that the chief was necessarily thinking about the institutional legit legitimacy of the court as a reason to invalidate the citizenship question. It's the fact that the addition of the citizenship question was so obviously unlawful for some of the reasons he gave, namely that the agency's rationale didn't line up with the, its actual decision-making process, such that allowing that legality, or illegality rather, would have undermined the legitimacy of the court. So it's not that the chief was saying, oh, I need to kind of side with both wings of the court and reach a minimal decision in order to further the institutional legitimacy of the court. It's that upholding this particular obviously illegal policy, in my view, would have greatly undermined the legitimacy of the court. And so I think that that is a very different kind of institutional legitimacy calculus than the kind that Ilya is referencing. Um, but that being said, I do think that there is some role for institutional legitimacy and other kinds of considerations rather than the kind of abstract legal theory questions that Ilya is referring to. You know, the Supreme Court is an important institution in American society, and part of it its power and part of its legitimacy derives from some sort of minimal acceptance of its rulings. There are some sort of decisions the court could reach that would be so substantively illegitimate that the court would no longer have a voice and it would undermine its authority. So sometimes people will point to the example of Plessy versus Ferguson or Dred Scott. Um, if the court reaches those decisions that are so substantively unjust and intolerable, 
well, that's not an authority that the court can claim anymore. So I do think that there is an admittedly very narrow space for the kind of institutional legitimacy considerations that Ilias suggests, I think rightly should be generally not, you know, the court's primary rationale. Ilya, help us understand how the other justices buy into the chief's vision of institutional legitimacy or not. Uh, the chief voted with the liberal justices something like four times in five to four cases in the past year and a half. The number was similar uh, in the previous 10 years. So he's clearly ramped up his willingness to uh, side with the liberals to avoid really contested decisions. Tell us more about Justice Kavanaugh's uh, decision to join the chief uh, in some of these uh, efforts at avoiding five to four splits and how that contrasts with the attitude of Justice Gorsuch. Well, I think the statistics uh, statistic you just mentioned includes uh, what we call the shadow docket. That is decisions on uh, emergency motions for stay, certain other kinds of uh, rulings that can be high profile, uh, but don't uh, aren't aren't in cases that after full briefing and and oral argument. Uh, this term on the, the the regular docket, the full briefing and, and argument. Uh, there was only one time where it was the chief plus the liberals against the four uh, against the four others. Gorsuch, however, joined four times with the liberals against the four uh, other conservatives. And overall, there were eight such times where uh, there was uh, the four liberals plus one of the conservatives versus the others, and eight times where it was the five conservatives versus the four liberals, and four times in kind of a heterodox mix. So I don't think it's it's necessarily the case that Roberts is always trying to join them, or Roberts plus Kavanaugh in kind of a, a 6-3 or something. It, it, it is the case that especially in a term that has relatively few blockbusters, I mean, the census and gerrymandering were by far, I think, the, the highest profile. And at the end of the day, compared to other things we've seen in the last decade, they weren't that uh, groundbreaking uh, uh, either. Um, I think uh, some of the dynamic that you saw when it was an eight-justice court, when it would be uh, uh, Roberts trying to get together with maybe Kagan, maybe Breyer to hash out a, a central position. Uh, maybe we'll see more of that kind of 6-3 or 7-2 on, on different issues. We, we, we saw that in important cases like um, the uh, Tennessee wine, the, the, the regulation of uh, in-state uh, uh, business, alcohol businesses. We saw that him doing something like that in uh, Kaiser, the administrative state case, where uh, he didn't necessarily join the substance of uh, Justice Kagan's plurality opinion, uh, but also wasn't willing to throw out uh, the precedent altogether in that case. I know we're going to be uh, getting towards that. But I think uh, he is uh, striving mightily, uh, not often, not, not always successfully, uh, to make the court speak with more of uh, of one voice, and so the the twenty five to four decisions, and I, I described the, the the various alignments that represents thirty nine percent of the total. That's about normal. That's uh, that that's what we've had uh, in the past, more or less. Uh, but the number of unanimous decisions is somewhat low this term. Also twenty, also thirty nine percent. So that indicates there's more of those seven to two, six to three decisions uh, by definition. Maybe that's an indication of some of this centrism uh, uh, coming out led by Roberts and probably Kavanaugh. Uh, we'll see how things shake out in future terms when maybe Kavanaugh uh, will feel uh, bolder and, and maybe speaking more uh, with his own voice rather than trying to kind of go along and not, uh, not rock the boat. 
Leah, that's an interesting statistic about the number of unanimous cases being slightly lower. Tell us more about your sense of the Gorsuch-Kavanaugh dynamic. You wrote a really interesting piece in the Washington Post uh, at the end of June called The Latest Chapter in the Gorsuch-Kavanaugh Saga is the Most Revealing Yet. You noted that uh, Gorsuch revealed a libertarian perspective and Kavanaugh represented a vision closer to big government conservatism. Tell us more about that difference and its significance for the dynamics on the court. Absolutely. So I think that the differences between those two justices, in fact, mirrors the differences between their predecessors. Of course, Justice Gorsuch was nominated to replace Justice Scalia, Justice Kavanaugh to replace Justice Kennedy. And Justice Scalia would sometimes side with criminal defendants and like to joke that the criminal defense bar, um, you know, thought of him as, you know, one of their favorite justices as a result. And this term, we saw Justice Gorsuch siding with the two more or the four more liberal justices in several important criminal procedure decisions like Davis or Haymond, in which they invalidated criminal statutes is unconstitutional. Um, on the other hand, you have Justice Kavanaugh siding with the more conservative justices like his predecessor, Justice Kennedy did, evincing kind of a big government law and order traditional conservative outlook. And what I think that that does, and as I suggested in the piece that you were referring to, is that it really does help the court's reputation as a nonpartisan institution. The more examples you have of these heterodox splits among the justices and these non-traditional lineups where it's not the chief as in the median, it's Justice Gorsuch instead, and him joining the more liberal justices, or you have Justice Kavanaugh joining the more liberal justices, like in Apple versus Pepper, the antitrust case, that helps the court's reputation and its institutional legitimacy because it makes it easier for commentators to point out that not all of the court's cases divide along purely ideological lines. And that fact might help the court over the long run, even as it does issue an important number of very conservative decisions that do divide along ideological lines, like the partisan gerrymandering case, or like the decisions where the court elected to overturn prior cases in state sovereign immunity or the takings clause. And so those differences between the justices with Justice Gorsuch's libertarian streak and Justice Kavanaugh's more pro-law and order one are a boon to the court's institutional reputation um, and I think that those will persist over time. The other difference that Ilya just alluded to, which is Justice Kavanaugh's apparently and perhaps temporarily desire to lay low and not openly question precedent as often as Justice Gorsuch does, it's hard to know whether and to what extent that difference will persist just because Justice Kavanaugh's incentive this past year after that grueling confirmation battle in which he was accused of sexual assault, his incentive was to stay low and not to kind of reach out um, and make a name for himself across the board. And it's unclear to what extent his you know, comparative unwillingness to question precedent as frequently as Justice Gorsuch does is temporary um, or will persist um, throughout the time, his time on the court. Thank you for that interesting point about how uh, heterodox alliances increase the court's bipartisan legitimacy and also for noting cases like Apple against Pepper, where, as you said, Justice Kavanaugh joined the for liberals in holding that uh, people who purchased apps for their iPhones through the app store of Apple were direct purchases under a case called Illinois Brick and can sue Apple for supposedly monopolizing the retail market. Um, Ilya, what, what can you say to help we the people's incredibly sophisticated and passionate listeners understand about the difference between the constitutional methodologies of 
Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Maybe you can describe each of their constitutional methodologies as you understand it. Sure. Um, Gorsuch uh, is an unabashed uh, originalist, um, which means going back to the trying to understand uh, what the public meaning of the relevant provisions are at any given time. So, for example, in the Tim's case about applying the excessive fines clause in the Eighth Amendment to the states, or what lawyers call incorporating that against the states, uh, he, like the uh, with uh, Justice Thomas, uh, is favorable towards reviving the privileges or immunities clause, uh, which was short-circuited in the slaughterhouse cases five years after the 14th Amendment's ratification, uh, whereas Kavanaugh did not, signed on to the majority opinion that just said we can do this as we've done generally through substantive due process, now, no need to join the concurrence regarding the privileges uh, or immunities clause. Um, Gorsuch, I mean, uh, Kavanaugh during his uh, confirmation hearing, I think did once call himself an originalist, but he's not known for that. Definitely a textualist. Definitely a skeptic of the administrative state in terms of uh, defer judges deferring to uh, the uh, the uh, executive agencies, uh, things like that. Although for reasons different than than Gorsuch, but not necessarily someone who looks to history, who you know cites uh, ancient text and Federalist Papers and. Uh, and, and, and contemporaneous speeches during the ratification of the 14th Amendment, uh, that sort of thing. And so even though uh, they're both Trump appointees and clerked for uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, they're definitely uh, uh, take different approaches. And statistically, that's borne out as well. Justice Kavanaugh uh, agreed uh, just as much with Justices Kagan and Breyer as he did with Justice Gorsuch, for example, which is remarkable. Adam Feldman, who runs the uh, statistics empirical SCOTUS for SCOTUS blog, says that this is the lowest rate of agreement among any uh, new justices in their first term together appointed by the same president since at least JFK, maybe even before that. You have to crunch the numbers, but it, it really is remarkable. They're only together 71% of the time uh, which, um, again, even though they're both supposedly solid, uh, you know, to the right, originalist, textualist of some kind, apply different method. And that's why I agree with the analysis that Leah just gave, that, that Kavanaugh is more of, uh, I don't know, an, an establishment type, prag more pragmatic like Roberts in, in many ways, whereas Gorsuch is ready to uh, revamp the jurisprudence in light of original public meeting as he sees it. Uh, often, but not always, agreeing with uh, Thomas in that regard. Leah, please help us understand the difference between Justice Gorsuch's originalism and Justice Kavanaugh's textualism. Uh, we've talked about some criminal procedure cases where the different approaches led them to diverge, but let's talk about the Gundy case, where Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and Roberts expressed a willingness to resurrect the so-called non-delegation doctrine, which has been dormant since the New Deal and would impose limits on Congress's power to delegate uh, lawmaking authority to the executive. Justice Kavanaugh was recused and Justice Alito said he, he might be willing to join when the time was ripe. Um, Justice Kagan, in her majority opinion, said if resurrected, this would mean the end of government. What was this debate, this fascinating debate between Justice Kagan and Justice Gorsuch about the non-delegation doctrine, and what does it say about the future of the administrative state? 
Yeah. So I just want to note that, you know, in answering the previous question, Ilya is kind of referring to that dynamic that I alluded to, which is these differences between the two nominees generate a set of statistics that can be used to bolster the court's institutional legitimacy and counter the idea that, you know, the two recent Trump nominees are the same and therefore the justices and judges are just partisan ideologues. Um, But even though the two most recent nominees have these methodological and perhaps temperamental differences between them, I think it's important to underscore that they often reach the same result. So, for example, they both voted to overturn the court's prior decision regarding state sovereign immunity. They both voted to overturn the court's prior decision in a taking case. They both voted together in the administrative law case, Kaiser versus Wilkie, where Justice Kavanaugh was not recused and would have elected to overturn um, uh, the doctrine under which federal courts defer to administrative agencies' interpretation of their own regulations. Even though Justice Kavanaugh was not yet on the court in Gundy, um, the decision you referenced where Justice Gorsuch indicated he would revisit the intelligible principle doctrine, which allows Congress to defer to agencies the authority to make rules that are binding on private parties, Justice Kavanaugh actually joined the portion of Justice Gorsuch's opinion in Kaiser that questioned the constitutionality of allowing administrative agencies to impose regulations that are binding on private parties. So I think that Justice Kavanaugh has already evinced some sympathy, if not entire willingness, to go along with Justice Gorsuch's revamping of the American state. And what the debate between Kagan and Gorsuch is about is, as Justice Kagan suggested, about whether, quote, much of American government is unconstitutional. The foundation of the American state rests on the idea that Congress can defer significant amounts of discretion and authority to administrative agencies. And that includes agencies like the Environmental Protection Administration and the Social Security Administration, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Agencies regulate all hosts of industries and all manners of private activity. And so by questioning the foundations of their ability to do so, Justice Gorsuch is casting a shadow on American government as we know it. And in that project, Justice Kavanaugh, even though he might not share the same methodology as Justice Gorsuch does, indicated he has some sympathy with. Ilya, if there were or when there are five votes to resurrect the non-delegation doctrine, how big a deal will that be and how will it transform uh, our uh, previous understanding of the post-New Deal Constitution? Well, it would force Congress to actually legislate. Uh, It would uh, enhance the accountability of our government so the laws are written by legislators rather than Um, administrators or civil servants who, after all, are merely supposed to be enforcing the law rather than uh, writing it. Because let's be clear, this is not supposed to be some sort of uh, left-right division on this. Congress can pass left-wing laws. Congress can pass right-wing laws. Congress can pass all sorts of different things. Uh, the, 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 the issue here is whether we want the legislative branch, uh, only to be legislating or, uh, whether we wanted to uh, delegate that power or how much of that power to the executive branch, meaning to the administrative state. And look, in our history, uh, only in two cases, both in the year 1935, has the Supreme Court struck down a federal law as being too much of a delegation by Congress to the executive branch, uh, violating this non-delegation doctrine. And what we saw here, and I think it's a shame that Kavanaugh didn't end up participating in the Gundy case. I think uh, they should have just either had a re-argument with uh, 
with the ninth justice because the the argument was held during that final week when when Kavanaugh was undergoing his uh, Senate confirmation, uh, or just allow him to read the transcript, read the briefs, and and participate uh, in the case because otherwise you waste a lot of judicial and litigation resources. And it's curious the result, the outcome. It ended up being five to three uh, to allow the particular delegation here here in the case. Uh, allowing the attorney general full discretion to write the rules uh, by which um, the sex of the federal sex offender registry would or would would not or how would be applied uh, retrospectively to people who had already completed their sentences or uh, in any event were, were were prosecuted were convicted before this federal law was passed. It's a a breathtaking delegation in an albeit uh, you know unusual or sort of weird area, this sex offender registry uh, area, and so. Uh, it would have been four to four, uh, but Justice Alito ended up giving his vote to Justice Kagan for the plurality uh, without agreeing with her rationale, saying uh, Alito did, if there were a majority that was willing to reconsider the non-delegation doctrine, I might uh, go along with that, but there wasn't here, uh, and I'm not about to you know, create waves in such a weird area when there's not a majority. But by doing so, by, as some people on Twitter called it, joining the libs to own the libs in the sense that he gave that vote, he gave the victory to the administrative state there, but that allowed Gorsuch's strident dissent uh, joined by Kavanaugh, by, by Alito and Rob, by, sorry, Thomas and Roberts to be published because in a 4-4, of course, uh, they don't publish any opinions. It's just uh, affirmed without opinion. And this way we know, this is how we know that four of them are ready to in, uh, invite that future challenge uh, and Kavanaugh will be the man, uh, the deciding point, I guess, uh, the next time there really is a non-delegation challenge. And I don't think that means a wholesale overturning of the entire administrative state, but I do think it means that uh, a lot, there's a lot of programs out there where for too long Congress has been allowed to pass these general laws or, or not legislate at all, as we've seen in the last decade, and, and still the administrative state produces reams and reams of, of rules by which Americans leave their daily lives. Leah, help us understand the stakes. Would the resurrection of the non-delegation doctrine uh, mean at least the beginning of the end of the post-New Deal administrative state? And in practice, what sort of regulations and agencies and practices might be called into question? I think Ilya and I probably disagree with this one because I think even if the Supreme Court does not on its docket take up every single delegation to every single agency, the mere signaling that it is a possibility that a court could strike down a delegation to an agency as lacking an intelligible principle would create an important amount of uncertainty among agencies and their ability to regulate. It would make them vulnerable to litigation in a way that they are not now. And it would make all of them potentially vulnerable to litigation. It would open up the invitation to regulated parties to bring these suits. It would open up an invitation to lower federal courts to strike down these delegations. And so the Supreme Court doesn't necessarily have to invalidate all of the delegations or that many of them to cause a great deal of mischief in um, undermining a lot of how agencies work. As far as the kind of delegations and regulations that would be vulnerable, you know, I think that the world that Ilya is imagining in which Congress is able to redo all of the work that administrative agencies do just isn't possible in part because of the vast number and spheres of areas in which agencies regulate. He mentioned the reams and Frames of regulations that are enacted, that's because agencies regulate, you know, any kind of industry that you can imagine. Um, they regulate, as Ilya suggested, all 
manners of private life and activity. We're talking about, you know, consumers, we're talking about finance, we're talking about work safety, we're talking about food safety, we're talking about uh, communication, we're talking about internet, we're talking about radio, we're talking about, you know, really anything you do, employment practices, anything you do, there is probably a federal agency that conducts some sort of regulation in that sphere. And so by jeopardizing and calling into question uh, the validity of those delegations, you are really paralyzing the agencies and making them vulnerable in a way that they haven't been for over the last 50 plus years. And in that respect, I do think that reinvigorating the non-delegation doctrine really would jeopardize the foundations of the administrative state and American governance as we know it. Ilya, we had a great podcast between Randy Barnett and Bruce Ackerman recently, and they agreed that uh, if... uh, not only the non-delegation doctrine, but other uh, restrictions on federal power that have been dormant since the New Deal were resurrected, it would uh, amount to a kind of fourth republic. You can call it the resurrection of the originalist constitution or the overturning of the New Deal constitution, but it would be a new understanding of our constitutional order. Uh, Do you agree with that? And do you think that the current lineup of the court might resurrect those limitations, or would uh, the Republicans need a new justice to achieve that goal? Well, if you pardon the pun, I think that observing the separation of powers and federalism structures of our Constitution would be wicked awesome. Uh, that is, that's a reference to the Commerce Clause case, uh, expanding the uh, the power of, of the federal government to, to legislate and regulate in, in a whole host of ways. I mean, uh, I think part of the reason why we have such a poisonous political discourse that has spilled or into or enveloped uh, the, the, the judiciary and the Supreme is many of the decisions in American life are being taken in Washington, uh, one, that's a federalism issue, and then by the administrative agencies um, that can only be adjudicated and ended up uh, in in the courts. So that's a separation of powers uh, problem. Only by rebalancing power, by actually having Congress be the source of uh, the resolution of debates over policy, uh, and by pushing down as much decision making as possible to the state and local level. Uh, you know, in a, in a large pluralistic society, ultimately that's how you uh, prevent these 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 politi- this political talks. Uh, uh, toxicity. And so, um, yeah, I think if you if if we actually, you know, either by the court's ruling or by introducing a constitutional amendment that said uh, after every clause and we mean it, yes, that would resurrect. Uh, I don't know what, what, whether it would be the fourth republic. I mean, that sounds like a like a French term. I think they're up to more republics than that. Uh, but it would mean that uh, Congress would have to take seriously its legislative power and so many of these disputes will be pushed down to uh, you know, lower levels where they can be better resolved than one size fits all. For example, we, we're now going to see this, I think, in gerrymandering, where the federal courts are no longer going to entertain uh, challenges to partisan gerrymandering, but uh, in the states, using state constitutional law um, or, or state politics, you can uh, certainly uh, put in all sorts of rules and limits uh, uh, to, to, uh, how much you can use politics to, to draw lines. And the same thing can and should be done, uh, under my reading of the constitution, which I think agrees with Randy's for things like, uh, healthcare and, 
uh, tax policy and and a whole host of other things. Leah, tell us more about what, let's call it not the Fourth Republic, which is quite French, but the originalist constitution would mean if it were resurrected in practice. Uh, do you agree with Ilya that it would simply push things down to the states and that regulation can properly take place at that level, or would it have other effects that you're less sanguine about? Um, I think uh, I would do well here to reference a piece that Jamal Green, who's a professor at Columbia, wrote for Slate, in which he noted that what did con law look like in the pre-1935 era that these justices are pushing us to? In a word, he wrote, it sucked. Um, There were no protections for racial minorities. There were no protections for women. If we're talking about going back to the original republic, this was an era of Jim Crow. This was an area where there was rampant sex discrimination and misogyny. There was no regulation at the state level because the states are not equipped to regulate industries that span across different states and can evade different forms of regulation if there's merely one state that doesn't regulate them. Um, So the idea that you are just pushing all of this kind of regulation down to the states is, I don't think, feasible. Just like it's not feasible to say, well, Congress can just pick up whatever slack the agencies, um, uh, you know, aren't going to be able to do if we revive the non-delegation doctrine. Um, And, you know, so reinvigorating these limits on Congress's power, whether you're talking about what Congress can regulate vis-a-vis the states or what Congress can give to agencies, is, I think, sending us back to an era. And there's a reason we left it. Um, There was a reason why we needed federal regulation to get us out of an economic downturn because of the interconnectedness of the economy requires there to be some national regulation, Um, in addition to the concerns about what sort of protections there would be um, if we really were returning to the pre-1930s constitution. So I think those are some of the concerns that some of us might have with a reinvigorated originalist constitution. You know, if we're talking about limits on Congress's power, I think there would be questions about Congress's ability to create paper money or Congress's ability to create a national bank or Congress's ability to do any host of things that we just take for granted today, like, for example, regulate the workplace. Um, Those are things that justices who are committed to the original constitution have questioned. And under a fair reading of the original public meaning or original history, Um, those practices would be called into question. So I guess I am not super jazzed about returning to that world, in part because I like owning property and voting. Ilya, just returning to the current court, um, what have we learned from the votes of Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas Alito, and Roberts that might uh, prevent them from resurrecting the originalist constitution with its full vigor and once the dust settles, taking the current dynamic, um, basically what major precedents do you think are on the chopping block? Um, so uh, I'll, I'll answer that. But first of all, I, I need to respond a little bit to Leah. I think a lot of that was uh, drawing up a straw man and a lot of some of it was bad history. And the rest, I think, was just a disagreement over some of the policy choices that some states would take in a regime where uh, they're exercising uh, some of the powers that the federal government currently is. Uh, certainly, I don't think anyone, no originalist that I know is talking about uh, repealing sex and race discrimination uh, protections. The 14th Amendment is a very uh, real and, and, and central part of our constitutional order. The Bill of Rights is as well, uh, you know, unenumerated rights through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Uh, it's not that states get to do whatever to oppress the individual. Because remember, federalism is there not for states' rights. That is a Jim Crow thing, and that's a, a deviation and a, and, a, and a warping and a mongrelized way of, of reading 
the Constitution. The Constitution exists, the structure exists to protect individual liberty. And so that's the reason why we divide up sovereignty. That's the reason why we have both uh, uh, horizontal separation and vertical separation of power. That's the reason why I think uh, this term, the gamble case, uh, that allowed the federal government to pursue a prosecution of a uh, uh, Mr. Gamble uh, uh, for the exact same crime under federal law, felon in possession, that he was already uh, uh, convicted and punished for under Alabama state law is wrong because, uh, again, uh, federalism exists not as kind of an abstract or dry theory, but as a, a manner of uh, preventing uh, oppression of individuals in various ways. So there are certainly uh, rights protections of various kinds that uh, – uh, uh, nobody's going to take the vote away from, uh, from Leah or prevent her from owning property or, or anything like that. Um, you know, the new deal, what the, what the federal government did or did not do during the new deal, I, I think it prolonged the recession. I think it, uh, you know, made things worse. And what, I mean, that's a debate over historians, but the, the, the point is uh, a lot of these, uh, uh, straw men or red herrings that are raised about, oppression of this or that minority group or child labor or, you know, uh, uh, environmental toxicity or what have you, uh, those are those are just that, that that's not the reality of how the original Constitution, as amended by the you know subsequent amendment amendments, would work. OK, now to the conservative five, uh, as it were, uh, I don't think they are going to take us to that, uh, whether you call it promised land or nightmare or, or what have you, because the court will only go as far as fast uh, as John Roberts uh, or Brett Kavanaugh and or Brett Kavanaugh will, uh, will, will, will take it. And they are cautious. Roberts, uh, as I said, is a minimalist or an incrementalist, meaning he's only willing to overturn precedent if there's several steps leading up to it that he sort of painted into a corner. Congress hasn't changed uh, these laws that he has problems with, things like that. We've seen that with um, uh, a number of areas from voting rights to campaign finance to property rights. Uh, you know, he, he is not the, uh, the, the first one to, uh, to, uh, overturn president. He doesn't hesitate when needed. And his opinion on stare decisis in Citizens United, for example, is probably even more important than, uh, Justice Alito's discussion of stare decisis in, um, uh, Janice, uh, from last term about worker rights against union state collusion, more important than this term discussion of stare decisis and either the sovereign immunity case Hyatt or Nick, the property rights case, or, or others, that's really uh, where they're going to go. So, you know, if you had uh, five Gorsuches or five Thomases, that would be a very different story than the, than the current mix, let alone for something uh, like Roe versus Wade or, or uh, abortion, where I think you'd probably need at least one, maybe two more justices uh, to, to, to fundamentally uh, uh, rethink that doctrine, although at the margin, certain regulations would be upheld that with Kennedy might have been struck down. Leah, much turns on the court's view of precedent. We had many of the justices express different views of the importance of stare decisis or precedent this term. Uh, what can we glean from their statements? And can you compare what Chief Justice Roberts said about precedent with uh, what Justice Thomas said? Absolutely. So just because I can never let a good argument go completely unanswered, I did just want to respond to two quick things Ilya suggested, which is that the arguments about gender and racial discrimination were very overstated. It's just not true. The justices or academics who are, are committed to, let's say, originalism have not questioned whether the Constitution prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. So, for example, Justice Scalia and Justice Rehnquist have both questioned the idea that the Constitution subjects to any kind of heightened scrutiny state laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. And as for race 
discrimination. Um, I don't think it's poor history to, for example, look at Michael Klarman's exhaustive history that suggested, based on an original understanding and historical practices, that discrimination in public education on the basis of race was widely considered to be constitutional and an accepted understanding about what the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment was. And even if you think that the 14th Amendment prohibits states from discriminating on the basis of race. What about the federal government's ability to discriminate on the base of race? There is no equal protection clause that applies specifically to the federal government. And based on any kind of historical understanding um, or original public meaning analysis, there would be serious questions about whether the federal government would be able to do so. And based on what we have seen for the last three years, I don't think it's hyperbolic to um, be uh, concerned about that possibility. As for the justices' views on precedent, as you suggested, the two different justices, the two newest justices, both kind of express some interesting views about stare decisis. Um, so Justice Gorsuch had an interesting opinion on stare decisis in Kaiser versus Wilkie, which is an opinion we've already discussed about whether the court was going to overrule a prior decision that allowed federal courts to defer to administrative agencies' interpretations of their own regulations. In that case, the chief joined the four more liberal justices to end up not overruling that precedent. And in his dissent, Justice Gorsuch kind of chided the majority for getting gun-shy and flinching at the opportunity to overturn that prior case. Justice Kavanaugh joined that section of the opinion. Justice Kavanaugh also joined the section of Justice Gorsuch's opinion that announced that stare decisis did not apply to decisions that prescribed a certain method of interpretation, like the rule that federal courts should defer to agencies' interpretation of their own regulations, versus a decision that announced a particular interpretation of a particular statute or constitutional provision. So that was one interesting riff on stare decisis that we saw this term. Justice Thomas also outlined a separate writing on his view on stare decisis in Gamble versus United States. Um, in that decision, the court elected to stick with its prior decision that said the states or federal government can try to prosecute you after the other attempts to do so. And in his separate writing, Justice Thomas said, Stare decisis does not require justices to adhere to what they believe are, quote, demonstrably erroneous precedents. Um, so therefore, stare decisis might require a justice to adhere to a decision that's just erroneous or wrong, but doesn't require them to adhere to a decision that they think is demonstrably or really wrong. So both of these separate writings are obviously chipping away at the set of cases in which the justices would feel or be bound by stare decisis. Um, Ilya also mentioned the court's prior opinion in Janus, um, which had elected to overturn an important decision governing the ability of public sector unions to collect agency um, uh, share fees. And in Janus, um, the court had basically chipped away at that prior case over time. And then when it finally pulled the trigger and elected to overturn that case, the court pointed to its prior decisions as evidence for why that earliest case had been undermined and was unworkable. And we saw the Chief Justice relying on that opinion in Janus to state the law of stare decisis in the takings clause case, um, Nick. And so if that is a majority of the justices' views on stare decisis, well, that too, I think, suggests that some number of the justices will feel less bound by stare decisis um, as they themselves chip away at a precedent over time. Um, and there were other 
other majority opinions this term that I think kind of gave somewhat short shrift to stare decisis. The court's sovereign immunity case that we've referred to, Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt, also did so, you know, in that case, Justice Thomas devoted a mere three paragraphs to stare decisis and his four reasons for overturning the case. You know, the first three were basically, this decision is wrong as original of original public meaning. This decision is wrong when compared to the court's prior precedents. And this decision is wrong, you know, in light of other facts about the world. And so if the justices are relying primarily on their assessment that a prior decision is wrong as a reason to overturn it, then I think that that might lead to more precedents being overturned than um, we would otherwise expect. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful answer and a careful parsing of three cases, Hyatt, Nick, and Kaiser, uh, where you really explained very well uh, the different tests. You ended with the Hyatt case, where, as you said, Justice Thomas identified four factors to consider the quality of the decision's reasoning, its consistency with related decisions, legal development since the decisions, and reliance on the decisions. The first three factors you suggested are basically is the reasoning, the consistency, and the legal developments uh, wrong, leaving just reliance. Ilya, what can you add to Leah's parsing of those three cases and, and do help us understand the difference between Justice Thomas's approach and perhaps the... Uh, approach of Chief Justice Roberts, who seems to uh, put more weight in stare decisis? Well, I think the factors that uh, you just listed uh, coming from uh, Thomas's opinion, those are, you know, that's not specific to Thomas. Uh, they, they always uh, use that. Alito listed uh, essentially the same thing in Janice. Uh, uh, John Roberts talked about the same thing in Citizens United, where he had a special concurrence just about stare decisis. Um, I frankly don't think any of the justices have a particularly a uh, strong view of stare decisis. I mean, perhaps nobody is as, you know, doesn't think of it as, as important hardly at all, like like Thomas, and maybe Gorsuch joins him in that. Uh, but I think um, uh, the, most of them are probably ready to throw out uh, cases they think are particularly wrong, uh, whether it be uh, Citizens United or, or Heller uh, for some of the progressive justices, certain other doctrines. Um, it's It really depends on whose ox is uh, is being gored. I mean, it, you know, we can, Lee and I can argue whether it's worth overturning a particular precedent or not, or how wrong in the grand pantheon it is. I think one thing that generally does animate the cases that have been overturned uh, in the last, what, five or, or, or 10 years, and by the way, the Roberts Court overturns precedent at a lesser rate uh, than the Rehnquist Court and basically any modern court going back to, I think, Earl Warren. John Adler at Case Western uh, Law School has done some good writing uh, about this. Uh, they also strike down fewer statutes than those previous courts uh, as well, by the way. So, you know, this is not a, a quote unquote activist court, whatever you might think, whether they're doing right or, or, or wrong. Um, but uh, what they're looking for is, was the original decision that they're looking to overturn, has it been undermined or did it originally misperceive certain things? So Janice, for example, was based on uh, an in-passing reference to a particular interest that originally from cases in the 50s and 60s had to do with jurisdiction under the Commerce Clause, federal jurisdiction, uh, federal power, uh, rather than a First Amendment interest in preventing uh, you know, uh, workers battling with unions or, 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 or something like that. So same thing in Citizens United. The, the case that was overturned was the only one ever that had used an interest other than the desire to prevent corruption uh, quid pro quo corruption or the appearance thereof. And so it was seen as an anomalous. That's the story that's told. And I think you could write that story about a lot of contentious uh, doctrines in the past that aren't settled in the sense that some people are still disputing them. 
something like segregation, something like racial or, 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 or gender discrimination, I think those pretty much are uh, uh, settled. And, you know, Leah raised uh, Klarman's work on, on Brown v. Board and, and original understanding of racial discrimination. You know, I'll, I'll see that and, and raise her Michael McConnell's work that you can very well justify through originalist grounds, uh, federal efforts to desegregate schools and the right to have uh, that kind of, uh, of education. So anyway, we can go on and on. That'll have to be a topic for a, for a future podcast. Uh, but also, you don't want to overstate the case. Even in Kaiser, uh, Elena Kagan's majority opinion was um, really uh, striking in how it was trying to limit the deference that judges give to agencies. So simply a lawyer at an agency reconsidering a previous legal position, that's not enough. There has to be agency expertise involved, scientific or economic or, or, or who knows what. The statute itself or the, 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 the regulation that's being reinterpreted has to actually be ambiguous. For that matter, Kavanaugh wrote about that all the time when he was on the D.C. Circuit, which is perhaps why both John Roberts joining Kagan and Kavanaugh joining Gorsuch uh, said there really wasn't that much uh, 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 separation between Kagan's uh, plurality or majority and, and, and Gorsuch's concurring opinion that would have overturned our altogether. We'll see how that turns out in practice. Are lower courts going to actually be deferring to agencies less? For that matter, our agency is going to be doing more work and not simply changing their policy views in a footnote in an amicus brief or through uh, paper guidance rather than notice and comment or, or, or what have you. Maybe five or 10 years from now, there will be another challenge to our, and at that point, John Roberts would be ready to overturn it. Or based on Kagan's tightening of the standards for agencies to use or for courts to use when they're evaluating agency action, uh, maybe that will have solved the problem and there will be uh, no further uh, need uh, to overturn uh, our. But again, some of these are are, are important differences. Some of them may be overstated. Many thanks for that. And we, the people listeners, you remember from our previous podcast that our is the case that directs courts to defer to an agency's reasonable interpretation of its own ambiguous regulation. And the Kaiser case uh, refined it without completely overturning it. All right. It is time for closing arguments in this really rich and vigorous discussion. And uh, the first one, Leah, is to you. Uh, how does the new Roberts court with the addition of Justice Kavanaugh differ from the Kennedy court that prevailed last year? I think that the new Roberts court differs from the Kennedy court in that it is more reliably conservative, particularly on social issues like LGBTQ rights or abortion. And I think on those issues, whereas Justice Kennedy's vote was always kind of in play, I think that advocates will have a much steeper hill to climb convincing the chief justice to join them and side with the four more liberals. And I think that even though Ilya and I and I have written about some of the important differences that exist between Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, that should not obscure the important similarities between them and how reliably conservative the two of them be have been in important cases like partisan gerrymandering, the takings case, the administrative deference case, the state sovereign immunity case, 
and others as well. And that Justice Gorsuch's more aggressive attitude toward precedent is also kind of a boon to the court in that it makes Justice Kavanaugh and the chief look a little bit more moderate. So we can refer to them as, you know, toward the middle of the court and as pragmatists when, as their votes in several cases suggest, you know, they are also willing to reshape American law in some important ways and important areas. And Ilya, the last word is to you. How does the new Roberts Court differ from the Kennedy Court? Well, it's really too early to tell. Uh, this was an unusual term um, uh, with, with very few blockbusters. Um, you know, Leah's probably making a predictive judgment about uh, LGBT rights and, and abortion because they didn't have those cases this term other than a little bit on the, on the shadow docket. And as we've seen, they've declined to take up uh, these abortion regulation cases out of Indiana, out of Louisiana. Um, people a month and a half, two months ago were uh, very concerned about the effective bans on abortion in Alabama and Georgia. Well, if this court isn't willing to take up just kind of uh, run-of-the-mill regulations and restrictions, I don't think they're going to be uh, taking up uh, these uh, effective uh, uh, bans. So that, I think, uh, a lot of the play that uh, from Roberts and Kavanaugh to be pragmatic, to be centrist, is going to come in that shadow docket rather than uh, you know, if they're forced when the rubber has hit the road uh, to, uh, to decide one way or another. The biggest difference that we saw this term uh, uh, explicitly, not just in terms of kind of predicting based on their, their records of Kavanaugh replacing Kennedy, is in partisan gerrymandering. For, for decades, there have been these challenges brought, and Kennedy uh, basically said, yeah, I think there's a problem with partisan gerrymandering, but nobody's given me a manageable standard to apply as a judge. Well, Kavanaugh definitively said, no, this is not something for the courts, agreed with Roberts uh, on that. I think we might see something similar uh, if and when the Harvard or some other uh, racial preferences in, in education admissions case comes up, uh, affirmative action. Uh, that could be an area where um, uh, uh, Kavanaugh is much uh, uh, stricter, that is, does not want to uh, government to, to use race, uh, whether what, you know, whatever, in, in whatever, uh, uh, context, but the rest is really to be determined. Kavanaugh is both more conservative than Kennedy and less libertarian, uh, meaning, uh, you know, maybe more comfortable with the new deal state, uh, maybe, um, uh, uh, on statutory questions, uh, that are, that are nebulous, uh, giving the benefit of the doubt to, uh, government rather than to a challenger, be that in the criminal context, be that in the LGBT context, be that in abortion or or, or anything else. Uh, um, and, and we'll just have to see how that all shakes out. But I think this the first term uh, is never uh, determinative, not in the sense that Kavanaugh is going to shift in his thinking, but in terms of his strategic role, what kind of uh, opinions he writes. Um, so, you know, very much to be determined uh, but it's, this is not the year where a you know five justice conservative block turned the court radically to the right. Uh, may happen, uh, but but not yet. Thank you so much, Leah Littman and Ilya Shapiro, for a rigorous, illuminating, and excellent discussion of the important first term of the new Roberts Court. Leah, Ilya, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Even though I didn't get to make my Kaiser joke. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your Kaiser joke? The greatest trick Kaiser versus Wilkie played is convincing the world our deference doesn't exist. 
Well, I, I have two that I've heard that one. There's there's also, you know, Kaiser got rolled or didn't get rolled. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what they really did was trim hour deference into more of a minute deference. Uh, yeah. See, there are so many good puns on this case. <laughs> I, I, I think we may actually leave this uh, on the podcast because our listeners deserve to hear it. Thank you. Deal. Take care. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Michael Boyd. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And dear We The People friends, please remember, as you wake and as you sleep, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and devotion to lifelong learning of people like you from across the country who are taking the time to listen to an hour of wonky, important, and illuminating debate so that you can make up your own mind. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount, even a dollar, to signal your support for our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, thank you for a wonderful Supreme Court term. I'm Jeffrey Rosen. <laughs>